great to see everyone here this morning on this Memorial Day weekend. We appreciate you all coming to our services this morning, and especially if you're a guest or a visitor, thank you for being here with us. Uh, we're in a study right now of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we've titled this uh, series, Rebuilding Your Future. And uh, really what we have in the book of ne- Nehemiah are the memoirs of Nehemiah. Um, it tells the story of Nehemiah coming from Persia uh, to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And as always, when someone is doing God's work God's way, Nehemiah faces obstacles and opposition. Um, If you'll turn with me to chapter 5, that's going to be our text this morning. And you'll remember if you were with us last time, we left off in chapter 4. It looked like everything was well. It looked like things were looking up. Uh, The project was at the halfway point. Uh, the momentum that uh, had, uh, had uh, stalled because of the obstacles and the opposition of Sanbai and Tobalat, uh, that momentum was regained. Uh, the discouragement seemed to have lifted. Uh, the threat of attack, of imminent attack, seemed over. Uh, the worst was behind them, or at least it seemed that way. But now here in chapter 5, Nehemiah is going to face an even greater threat, an even more dangerous threat, a threat from the inside. Now, building the walls had contained the threat on the outside, but it, it hadn't curtailed uh, the threat that was on the inside. And we're going to see this morning that Nehemiah chapter 5 is a very contemporary, up-to-date chapter. Uh, you have uh, bad debts, loans, mortgages, corporate greed. I mean, it's all there, the things we see today. But these were the issues that were troubling Jerusalem and Nehemiah uh, when he writes this chapter. So let me read verses 1 to 13. We'll look at the whole chapter But let me just set the stage with these first 13 verses. Now, there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. And now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of the daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because of our fields and vineyards belong to others. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. And I consulted with myself. And I contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You're exacting usury, each from his brother." Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now how would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again, I said, The thing which you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please leave off this usury. Therefore, give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and the hundredth part of the money and of the grain and the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Then they said, we will give it back and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Well, so reads God's inspired and errant word. 
Back in 1805 was a famous naval battle called the Battle of Trafalgar. It happened off the coast of Spain, and it pitted the fleet of the, the British against the combined fleets of, of the French and the Spanish. Um, it was a, a decisive victory for Admiral Lord Nelson. He was hailed really as the savior of the nation. And if you go to London today, there's a place there called Trafalgar Square that commemorates this great naval battle. But on the night before the battle, uh, Admiral Lord Nelson finds out that two of his commanders are squabbling with one another and have a, a serious disagreement. And so he's making all the battle plans, but he takes some time out and he gets these two commanders and he takes them up onto the, the deck of the ship and he points out towards where the ships of the, uh, the, the Spanish and the French are and he says, men, he said, yonder is the enemy. And I like that because sometimes we can lose sight of the fact of who our enemy really is because of our squabbling with one another. Our own selfishness and our squabbling can really make us our own worst enemy. We can forget who the real enemy is. And in doing so, we can become, in essence, our own worst enemy. And we can do the enemy's work for him. I mean, many of you, I'm sure, have noticed over the years, if you've visited various churches or we just look out at the church as a whole, that often the worst enemy of the church can be the church. We're often our own worst enemy when we're, we're focused on self and focused on our own way, and we squabble and have strife and dissension and discord among ourselves. The same thing can be true in our personal lives, though, in our marriages and in our families. Internal conflict and friendly fire fueled by selfishness bring discord and dissension into families, into homes, into churches as well. And that's what we find here in Nehemiah. Uh, the wall is going up, but love is breaking down in the city. Now, I want to gather our thoughts this morning under three main headings. I want to see the problem surfaced. What's the problem? Then the problem solved, and then the pattern set. Nehemiah, at the end of the chapter, is going to give his own life as a pattern that others are to follow, including us. So let's start with the problem surfaced. Uh, the key to this passage here this morning hangs on the front door here. It says in verse 1, there was an outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. So there's a great outcry here or a rumbling, but the outcry is from Jews about Jews. It's not an outcry about Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, the enemies on the outside of the walls we saw last time. It's Jews crying out about Jews. What we have here now is an internal threat within the city. And there's widespread poverty and injustice and oppression that's taking place. And Nehemiah fleshes it out for us here and gives us the three main complaints or issues that were involved. Uh, notice the first group in verse 2. He says, There were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and live. Now these would be the laborers or the merchants who didn't own land. And think about this, they're, they're being called by God and by Nehemiah to come work on the walls of the city, but by working on the walls of the city, they're diverting their time and their manpower to that, so it's seriously cutting into their income, so they don't have enough money uh, to purchase food. And this threatens to bring the work here, of course, to a standstill. But then there's a second group. Notice he says in verse 3, and there were others who said... We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses so that we might get grain because of the famine. So these are property owners, 
but they don't have money. They're running out of money as well. Again, they're, they're, they're using their time to rebuild the walls of the city, and they're being forced to mortgage their fields and their vineyards and their possessions just to get money to buy food. And so you got the wealthy there in Jerusalem, the local loan sharks, if you will, who are taking the fields and the vineyards and the possessions of these people as collateral and then charging them interest on the loans. And the people here are in deep trouble. And again, the source of their trouble is their fellow, fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. So the wealthy here are basically piling on the poor. Uh, they're exploiting and oppressing them. And on top of all of this, notice the end of verse 3. Um, it says there, um, our fields and vineyards and our house that we might get grain because of the famine. So the whole situation was complicated and compounded by the fact that uh, food uh, seems to be running short. Now in verse 3, or, or verse 4, we've got another group here. And he says, there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. So April 15th rolled around. It always does in every culture, right? And uh, the Jewish people at this time, Judah, is a province of Persia. They're under their Persian overlords, and they owe them taxes. And again, because of diverting their manpower and their labor to the walls, they're running short of money. They don't have enough money to pay their taxes. So they're staggering under this heavy burden of taxation. And they're so financially strapped that they have to borrow money from the wealthy to pay their taxes. But notice in verse 5, it gets so bad. He says, and now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves and sons and our daughters to be forced into bondage already. Now, I like how he starts this. They say, look, our flesh is like their flesh and our children are like their children. Sometimes there's a temptation for people that have more to think that somehow people who have less love their children less than we do. See the difficulties and the struggles they're in. Look, they love their children as much as we love our children. Uh, their children are flesh and, and important in the image of God, just as our children are. And they're saying, look, our, our children are like your children. Yeah, we're having to force our children into indentured servanthood and slavery because of what you're doing to us and how you're exploiting us. So the choice was starvation or servitude. And the practice here that's spoken of was known as debt slavery. What you would do is you, ex you would exchange your labor to pay off a debt. You'd basically become like an indentured servant is more what this was like. Now, this practice was not forbidden in Scripture, but it was regulated in Scripture. Uh, let me read back in Leviticus 25 what's stated there um, about this practice. <clears throat> Leviticus 25 and verse 39 says, If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee." What happened is in Israel, every seventh year was a sabbatical year, and people who were indentured servants were allowed to go back, and to, to, uh, go back to freedom. And every 50th year was a jubilee year when all property was returned. So there was a mechanism for property to be returned to their families. 
But he says in verse 41, He shall go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family, that he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold uh, in a slave sale. You are not to rule over him with severity, but you are to revere your God or you're to fear God in the way that you treat them. But the situation here is is that they're having to to put their own children, sons and daughters, into debt slavery to the wealthy. And in fact, in verse 5, where it says there, some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, what was common in that culture as well is you would have a daughter, if you were poorer, and you would actually give her to one of these wealthy people as another of their wives to help pay off a debt. Of course, you can imagine how that was abused. Families that were poor, that had daughters that were beautiful or attractive, were taken by those who were wealthy and to be brought into them as wives to pay off a debt. And so you can see how this is being abused and exploited. But the the end of verse 5 summarizes this. The, The people in Jerusalem say this, We are helpless because of our fields and our vineyards belongs to others. We're helpless and we are powerless. And that's a terrible place to be in life. Now, the source of all of this is the greed and the self-centeredness of those who are wealthy. And the source of this problem is selfishness. And it always is. I mean, that's ultimately the heart of every problem. They're exploiting other people to make money. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, when the enemy fails in his attacks from the outside, remember chapter 4, that's what that was about. There was a threat from the outside. That had been put down. So when the enemy fails in his attacks from the outside, he begins to attack from within, and one of his favorite weapons is selfishness. And selfishness always leads to discord and dissension and strife. So all of this is wreaking havoc here among the citizens of Jerusalem. Now what's Nehemiah going to do? Well, verse 6, we see the problem solved. And I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Nehemiah is incensed at what he sees. Now, people often say, well, how did Nehemiah not know about this earlier? Well, probably he's so immersed in the work that he's doing that God's called him to that he's kind of oblivious to the depth of this situation. But he's angry about this. This is a righteous anger and indignation. Now, we all like to think that we have righteous anger. I would say my anger about 99% of the time is unrighteous anger. And uh, probably the 1% when it's righteous anger, it can descend quickly into unrighteous anger too if we're not careful. But there is an anger that's righteous. And there are times, I think, when it's actually sinful not to be angry about things that we see in this world. I mean, Jesus was angry, righteously angry when they were turning his father's house into a, a den of thieves. But it's right to be angry when the glory of God is offended. It's right to be uh, angry when uh, the the law of God is discarded with impunity. It's right to be angry when uh, people are oppressed, vulnerable people are exploited. Uh, Social injustice should make us angry. The oppression of vulnerable people should make us angry as well. I like what one of the Puritans said, you can be angry and not sin when you are angry with nothing but sin. And that's a good point. You can be angry and not sin when you're angry with nothing but sin. And there are sinful things in this world that should cause us to be angry. And and, and Nehemiah is rightly angry about this, but notice Even though he's rightly angry, he doesn't let it get out of control. Notice right after it says he's angry, verse 7 says, and I consulted with myself. 
So it's kind of like he takes time to reflect here and get his emotions in check. So he's angry, but he, but he gets cooled down and gets a hold of himself. And even when we're righteously angry, we need to do that as well. Because if we don't, it can quickly descend into an unrighteous anger. So Nehemiah now in verse 7 and following, he's going to move from construction site manager to social worker. He's going to go out there and try to solve the problems here among the people. Now, I love this. Nehemiah confronts this problem head on. He meets it head on. And that's one of the things I think that good leaders do. They face problems. They don't run from them and avoid them. And Nehemiah calls all these wealthy citizens together, and he confronts them. He confronts them for taking advantage of the poor. Now, some people might actually look at this chapter and kind of in the back of their mind wonder, well, what was so bad about this? I mean, these wealthy people have got money, and uh, they're taking these people's property as collateral and charging them some interest. I mean, hey, they were just being shrewd, right? I mean, that happens all the time in our culture. These are just good business people. Well, the problem is we're going to see there's some things here that violate Scripture, but the other overarching problem is those who are poor, they're working on the wall and doing God's work. That's why they're struggling, and these people are moving in to take advantage of that, and they're actually thwarting the work of God in doing that. They're actually threatening to bring the work of God to a standstill. But Nehemiah makes three appeals here. The first thing he says is, look, you're doing this to people who are your brothers, Notice three times in verses 7 and 8, and then again in verse 10, he refers to brothers. And he's saying, look, these are your brothers, your fellow brothers and sisters uh, within uh, Judaism, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they've been redeemed from slavery, brought out from Persia. He says in verse 8, they were sold to the nations, and we brought them back here, and now you're enslaving them again. He said, how can you do this? These are your brothers and your sisters. And I like when he says that. It says the end of verse 8, and they were silent, and they could not find a word to say. So Nehemiah uh, pulls them and catches them short here. Now, another thing we see here is that Scripture uh, forbids this. Jews could charge interest from foreigners or non-Jews, but Jews could not charge interest of fellow Jews. It was forbidden in the Old Testament. And Nehemiah brings the, the word of God to bear. Uh, Exodus twenty two twenty five says this, If you lend money to one of my people among uh, you who is needy, do not treat it as a business deal. Charge no interest. Deuteronomy twenty three nineteen says, Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. That's pretty clear, right? You may charge a foreigner interest, but a fellow Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to and in the land you're entering to possess. So clearly, what they were doing was against God's law. And that's what he says down in verse 7. You are exacting usury. And notice verse 10. He says, likewise, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and grain. Now, that's interesting. Nehemiah is wealthy. And Nehemiah is lending people money and grain, but he's not charging them any interest. He says at the end of verse 10, leave off of this usury. So what they were doing was contrary to the law of God. Now what's interesting is one of the reasons God sent the Jewish people into captivity, the northern kingdom to the Assyrians, the southern kingdom to the Babylonians, was they oppressed the poor. And now here they are back in the land doing the very things 
for which they were sent into captivity. You can go read prophets like Isaiah and Amos who cry out against the exploitation of the poor. So Nehemiah rebukes these creditors who are profiteering from the distress of their Jewish brothers. And he lays out the truth of the Word of God, and he's not afraid to say what's right and what's wrong. I like verse 9. He said this, The thing you're doing is not good. Or literally you could translate it, This thing you're doing is not right. And that's not a popular thing to say to people today, to tell people what you're doing is not right. In fact, often in our culture today, to say this is right and that is wrong is considered wrong. That's kind of a relativism, right? God's law has been removed as the standard. But I love this. Nehemiah hits the issue head on. He's not afraid to say, here's what the Bible says, and what you're doing is not right. He's confronting uh, their selfishness. So their brothers, the Bible forbids what they're doing, but it's also a poor testimony. Look at verse 9. The thing you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God? I keep that thought in your mind. I'm going to develop that a lot here in a moment. The problem is they don't fear God. But he says, because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies. He's saying, look, what you're doing here is a bad advertisement for God. It's nullifying your witness. I mean, how can the pagans see the Jewish people behaving this way towards their own neighbors and be persuaded of the uniqueness and the reality of Israel's God and put faith in Him? I mean, who'd believe that Israel's God is kind and merciful and compassionate when His worshipers are cruel and uh, merciless and mean towards the people He loves? He's saying, look, it's it's a bad witness And when we live like everybody else and there's no difference in our lives, uh, we give up our testimony as well. Look, Sanballat and and, uh, and Tobiah must have loved all this dissension. They're the enemies on the outside because the Jews on the inside are doing their work for them. And the world is watching us today. It's watching your marriage. It's watching your family. It's watching your business dealings. It's watching your character. And you and I will either be a witness for the truth or a witness against the truth. Look, often, and I see this a lot in Christianity today, and and I I can fall into this trap myself very easily. It's very, very easy for us to spend all of our time focusing on what the evil world on the outside is doing and condemning that. And we all know there's a lot out there to condemn, right? But... When we look at the lost world around us, we ask, well, why do they live that way? They live that way because they're lost. We ought to expect that of them, right? I mean, that's the way lost people live. It's chaotic. But shouldn't we often spend more time thinking about what we're doing, what we're doing as believers, what we're doing in our families, what we're doing within the church, and repenting of those things we need to turn from, and thinking about what kind of testimony we have out to that world that's lost and in chaos today. And maybe if we did that, more people out there in the world would be attracted uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. William Sangster was a a great Methodist preacher back during World War II in England, uh, just a, a shining light during World War II in England. But he made a great statement. Think about this for a moment. He said this, Are some people outside the church because you're inside? It's a good thing to think about, isn't it? Are there people that are outside the church because you're inside? 
Now look, none of us live perfect lives. We're all hypocrites on our own way. None of us live consistent lives totally. But is there a consistency in our life that people can say that person loves Christ? They have a, their heart throbs for the glory of God. And if that's not true in our lives, there may be people that are on the outside because we're on the inside. The key to all this, though, is verse 9. You should walk in the fear of God. These wealthy landowners, these wealthy merchants, the officials are loaning the money out at usury. The problem is, the ultimate problem, they don't fear God. Now you say, well, what does it mean to fear God? Most of you know it's a reverential awe. One man this week I read said that it's an, it's, an, it's an awesome dread and an astonished devotion to God. Look, those who know God fear God. If you don't know God, then if you don't fear God, it's because you don't know Him, and you don't really have to know that much about Him to fear Him. Uh, God is eternal. God never had a beginning, and God will never have an ending. Every attribute that God has, God has that attribute to an infinite extent. I mean, God is infinitely holy. God is infinitely just. God is infinitely loving. I mean, just think about God for just a few minutes, and we, we should be gripped with an awesome dread and an astonished devotion of who God is. And he says to these people here, the real problem is you don't fear God. When we don't fear God and have God in his proper place, you know what's going to assume that place in lives? Ourselves, selfishness. And when selfishness fills that vacuum, then what results from that is dissension and strife and chaos like we see here in this passage. Now, I love Nehemiah here in these verses. He says uh, in verse 11, Please give them back this very day their fields, their vineyards, um, and do exactly as I tell you. In other words, we're not going to waste any time. He calls them all together, and he says, Today, right now, I want you to give everybody back their vineyards, all the collateral you've taken, and I want you to give back the interest. And notice he says here, and he calls it here in uh, verse 12, uh, the hundredth part that they've taken, or verse 11, and also the hundredth part of the money. Now, the hundredth part, obviously, is 1%, and if you figure that out, 1% times 12 months, probably it's a, a 12% annual interest rate they were charging. So he says, if you've taken somebody's fields or land or vineyards as collateral, you give it back to them and you give back every bit of the interest as well. And I love this. They're confronted by Nehemiah and they do it right on the spot. He says, uh, they said, we will give it back to them. We'll require nothing from them. We'll do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and I took an oath from them. He doesn't trust them. They're going to do it. He says, you guys are going to have to take an oath in front of the priests. And then he goes, makes this dramatic formalization of this. He takes the fold of his garments and he shakes it out. So it's a dramatic picture of a curse. What he's saying is, if you fail to keep your promise, God is going to shake you just like I'm shaking this garment, and he's going to shake out all of your houses and all of your possessions, and he's going to empty you and going to take everything you've got. That's dramatic. Verse 13, I shook the front of the garment. Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. And thus may he be shaken out and emptied. So he's saying, don't force God to come along and shake you out of the robes of his blessing. So they're to keep their vows and their promises to God. And we better do that as well. Now, I love this. This is so beautiful here. When all this happens, all the assembly said, Amen. 
And the word amen means so be it, so be it. They agreed with everything that he said, and they put themselves in submission to the word of God. And then notice the next phrase, and they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. The people said, so be it. They submitted themselves to God's word, and then they praised the Lord. There's joy in repenting and obeying the Lord. The reason a lot of people don't have any joy in their life is they've never given the amen to what God has told them to do. When we say amen or so be it to what God says in his word, then we can have rejoicing. In fact, one person says it like this, there will never be a hallelujah in your life until first there's an amen. You have to say amen and so be it to the word of God, to what God tells us to do before there can be a hallelujah in your life. And that's true in your individual life, again, your marriage, your family. It's true of us in this church. There's no real celebration without submission, humble submission to the Word of God. It's in the amen that we say, let it be so in my life to the Word of God, bringing our our will into submission to the truth of God. And then when that happens, there rises a heart and a song of praise in our lives to the Lord. So if you're wondering in your life why there's no celebration, why there's no praise in your life, why the joy is gone, maybe it's because there's not a consistent amen in your life to what the Bible tells you to do. They say amen to the Lord, and then all the assembly begins to praise. Now, after confronting the problems here that, that, that Nehemiah has dealt with, Nehemiah gives us a pattern to follow. After the negative, he gives the positive. And he uses his own life here as an illustration, as a contrast to what these uh, wealthy people are doing there in the land of Israel. So this is kind of an autobiographical section. So I call this the pattern set. And I love, I think this is a great section because in in our day of public scandals, it's, it's refreshing to see a man like Nehemiah. I mean, Nehemiah drains the swamp, but he starts with himself and his own administration. He says in verse 14, Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor, this is the first time we find out that he was the governor of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. So this is a summary. Nehemiah is looking back on his entire 12-year tenure as governor, and he's telling us what he did during that period of time. And what he's telling us here is, look, I didn't act like the previous governors before me. Look at verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people. They took from them bread and wine beside 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. So all the previous administrations had laid a heavy burden on the people. Nehemiah doesn't do that. And why doesn't he do it? Look at the end of verse 15. Because of the fear of God. What was the problem with those who were charging usury and exploiting their brothers back in verse 9? They didn't walk in the fear of God. What does Nehemiah do? He walks in the fear of God. That's what sets him apart. It's the key characteristic of his life. And as we've read through this book, we've seen Nehemiah has a high view of God. Back in chapter 1, he said that he reveres the name of God. He tells us that God is great and awesome. And it's the fear of God that produces the selflessness and the generosity of his life. 
Look, God has to have first and have priority in our lives. I mean, we all know that from Scripture. But Nehemiah is one who really acted on that and lived it out. You know, there's an old saying that, uh, you know, there, there's many things God can't do. So well, I thought God could do anything. Well, the Bible tells us God can't lie. The Bible tells us God can't deny himself. There's another thing God can't do. God can't take second place. He can't take second place. You could try to give him second place, but he's not going to take it. God cannot take second place because he is the holy God and the creator of all things. And Nehemiah gives God the proper place in his life, and then all the other priorities in his life are ordered underneath that. And what's interesting is as governor... There were a lot of perks, a lot of finances, a lot of money available, a lot of food. The governor had the right to levy taxes for the Persians, but he also had the right to levy taxes for his own treasury. And again, it would have been easy for Nehemiah to come in and just keep up the pattern of his predecessors. Just say, you know, we're going to do the same thing, collect this money from you, uh, collect food from you and all these things so I can live large. But Nehemiah relinquishes those rights and waived those privileges. And there's a good lesson for us here, and that is just because something is available to us and permitted doesn't mean we have to use it. Just because the previous person did something doesn't mean we have to do it. Some things aren't wrong, but they're not best. And it wasn't best here at this time for Nehemiah to avail himself of these privileges. So Nehemiah fears God, and because he fears God, he's selfless and he's generous. Notice down in... uh, Verse 17, moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations who were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Now you take that for 12 years, that's 4,380 sheep, 26,000, or oxen, 26,280 sheep. It's a lot of sheep and oxen. And Nehemiah takes no money from the people for this. He uses his own resources. And he says, Yet for this I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on the people. He realizes the people are struggling under this burden. He doesn't take this advantage for himself. Verse 16, too, he says, I applied myself to the work on this wall and didn't buy any land. I mean, being the governor at this time, he could have easily gone out and probably speculated on pieces of land and purchased those at a cheap price and then later sold them for uh, and made a lot of money. He wasn't out trying to buy up land and, and doing these things for himself. Look, there's nothing wrong with possessing wealth as long as the wealth doesn't possess us. The issue is not do we have a lot of stuff, but does the stuff have us? And the stuff and the possession don't have Nehemiah. The one who holds Nehemiah's heart uh, is the Lord himself. Nehemiah is possessed by God, not by gold. He closes his autobiography out here, this section, with a prayer. And Nehemiah, as we've seen already, is a man of prayer. And he says in verse 19, Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now, at the end, you'll kind of say, well, now this seems kind of selfish. You know, Nehemiah is this unselfish guy, but now he's kind of wanting God to reward him. But Nehemiah understands from Scripture that God is a rewarder. And we go to the life beyond this life that God is going to reward us. And he's looking with a a long-term, eternal perspective. In fact, one writer says this, Why would Nehemiah ask God to remember for his good what he has done? 
it seems that he wants the good that he's done for God's people to be remembered because he's looking to the reward. He's looking to the great accounting when the breathtaking pleasures and heart-filling joys will be known by those who live for God rather than for themselves. Here we see the source of Nehemiah's selflessness. Nehemiah wants to serve God and God's people because he believes that living by faith in what he cannot see will be more rewarding than living for what he can see in this life. That's the way Nehemiah lived. He he had God and God's priorities at the top of his list. Nehemiah lives with the end in view. Look, for you and for me, we will be our own worst enemy in life when we fail to fear God. We don't fear God. What's going to happen is we're going to serve ourselves and put ourselves in first place. And when we focus on self, it's going to bring all kinds of trouble to our lives, all kinds of discord, all kinds of strife. But when we fear God, when God is first, we're unselfish, we're generous, and we bring blessings to ourselves and to everybody around us. And Nehemiah feared God. He put God first in all of his thinking and in all of his doing. It's like a story I read a while back. A man wrote a book. He was a Secret Service agent under the time of President George W. Bush. And he uh, wrote a book about his time there and a lot of interesting stories. But he tells one about when uh, President Bush and his wife were invited over to the the home of a a couple who live in Washington, D.C., And he told about all the things they had to go do ahead of that. They went to see the lady that owned the house and her husband, and they uh, went in and picked the the exact place at the table where President Bush would sit so he's not near a window. They had to go in and put big heavy drapes on their windows so no one could see in. I mean, all kinds of things they had to do. And then he he, uh, told the the woman at the house, he said, the nearest closet to this room, wherever it is, clear it out enough where there's room for two people to get in it. She said, what do I do that for? She said, he said, if anything happens, I'm going to grab the president and we're going into that closet. It's the nearest place. So make sure there's room in there for both of us. So when he was telling her all that stuff, she said, well, if something happens, you're going to grab the president, take him in that closet. But what about the rest of us? And he looked at her and said, ma'am, I only have only one client, the president. You know, the rest of you are on your own, right? But I like that because Nehemiah had one client. His client was not Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. His client was not the wealthy nobles and officials in Jerusalem. Nehemiah's one client was Yahweh. That's the one that he served and looked to. And he focused on God and he feared God and that ordered the rest of his life. All the rest of his life was ordered underneath that. And because of that, he was unselfish and he was generous. And everybody underneath him was blessed. So look, in this church and our families and our homes, let's not be our worst enemy. We're our worst enemy when we don't fear God. We put ourselves in first place and everything underneath that is ordered under ourselves. And we all see what that happens in life. We've all seen it in our own lives at various times. When we fear God, when He's our client, when He is glorified, then we are blessed. Everyone around us is blessed as well. So if you want to be your own best friend and God's friend and the friend of everyone around you, then fear God. That's where it all starts for you and me in our lives. We need to have a a, a devotion to God, an awesome dread and an adoring devotion of our God. That's where it all starts for you and me in our lives. Let's pray together. 
The fear of God begins for each one of us when we take Jesus to be our Savior. You really can't fear God if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you don't have a relationship with God. So I'd invite you now, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, to believe in Him this morning. We need to fear God, but we need to hope in His mercy. God is merciful. God is infinite in mercy, and God has provided that mercy in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus. He came and died in your place and rose again from the dead. If you'll believe in Him, you can have a relationship with this holy, righteous, sovereign God that we've spoken of here this morning. So don't leave here this morning without receiving the mercy of God that He offers to you in His Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, for those of us who know you, I pray that you'd help us to fear you, to live our lives in awesome dread and astonished devotion at who you are, to be unselfish, generous servants, to possess things but not to allow those things to possess us. When we hear your word, to always say the amen to the word of God, to say so be it, to live it out in our lives. Father, help us to be angry about the right things. Father, I, I pray above everything else that our hearts will throb for you and for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand for the benediction, please. Again, if you're visiting with us, thank you for being here. If you go out these doors around the corner, there's a welcome center there. There's some folks there that'd love to greet you and uh, give you some more information about our church. Let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we leave here with the Lord's blessing. Father, I pray that you'll take these truths we've looked at here this morning and, and make them real in our hearts and lives. Lord, energize us here this morning to fear you, for you to be our one client in life, the one we look to. So, Father, as we go out and leave here today, I pray that everything in our lives would be ordered under that one priority of fearing God. We won't be our own worst enemy in our homes and our families. Oh, God, help us to carry this out. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.